Ecclesiastes chapter 3. All right, let's pray together, shall we? <clears throat> let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we gather again to this evening to worship you, to give you praise, because you alone are worthy of it. What great reminders you gave us through those songs, especially Jesus, as we look upon you, all hail King Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. Father, it's a, it's a tall task to come up and to teach your word, and I don't pretend to have it together or have the ability to see anything to see anything truly happen. There's no way that I can meet the needs of everyone in the room, but Holy Spirit, you can. And so would you help, please? Holy Spirit, would you please help? Would you do a work tonight that leaves us amazed? Those of us who love you, God, would you remind us? Remind us, Jesus, what you did for us. Father, for those who don't know you, don't want you, those who are still pushing against a relationship with you that comes through Jesus, oh, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would make them uncomfortable, that you would force them to think through the things we've talked about so far, that you'd convict of sin, God, that, Father, you would draw them to Jesus. God, for those who are, they're just not feeling, they made a decision for you a while back, or they had some type of experience in the past, but they're not living for you. It's not following you. I pray, God, that you would draw them back into intimacy with you or true salvation, whatever is necessary, God. And so, God, I pray you would take a feeble attempt on my part to make much of Jesus and do an incredible job and leave us amazed. We commit this time to you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. amen. So we've looked at when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? And part of that heavy laden is just you feel like you're beat down. And I think I asked you, I think I asked you to raise your hands. I'd love to hear it, or I'd love to see it again. For those that say, just, yeah, just kind of feel, I mean, you've had a good weekend, hopefully, so far, and having a good time, but it's like, maybe for some of you, you're going back home, and you're just going, when I go home, it just feels like I'm going back and I feel like I'm just going to be overburdened and beat down by what life has given me. Is anybody feeling like that? Yeah, I get it. Friends, um, when I was thinking through that idea of beat down, I was, I, uh, I, when I was nine, I wanted to do karate. And so I told my parents, I was like, I want to go. I want to go. I want to be karate. I'll be the greatest champion ever. Like, I just need to go extreme. So my parents are like, you sure you want to do this? I said, absolutely. So they actually put me and my brother. My brother's three and a half years older than I am. They put us both in. We wanted to do it. And I don't know if it was right around the time Karate Kid came out, so everyone's going to karate school. But we joined, and then there was like a, I don't know. Actually, the first tournament was fantastic. About three months in the first tournament, I had to spar my brother for first. Like a big old trophy, and there's my mom and my grandma. And now in the past, my brother and I would kind of get in fights and playful and sometimes not so playful. And, but mom would always stop it. But she couldn't do it here. 
And so I'm just sitting there going, you're done. Or he's taught, you're done. Like, I got you. Mom can't save you. Like, it's kind of cocky. And we got down to two to two, and we, we, we fight to three, and no joke, I won. And I went, oh, my gosh. And I got this huge trophy. And you know it's like he picked it up a garage sale. <laughs> it might have had a bowling guy at the top. Like, I don't even know where it really came from. But I remember, like, my parents put us in there. My grandma looked at my mom and said, I will never come to one of these again. I said, you should come back because then I'll beat him again. I just, I had this cocky little attitude. Of course, now he could jack me up. But here's the thing, like, I, I really felt like I was like the karate kid. But I don't know, about six, nine months into it, I was kind of like, oh, I'm kind of getting tired of it. And so I kind of mentioned it to my parents, and my parents said, no, you're not quitting. You're going to finish this. I said, finish? I said, what does that mean? Well, what's the top belt you can get in karate? Black. I was like, black belt. And they go, well, have you gotten that yet? I was like, uh, no. Well, I guess you got to finish. And I went, oh, my gosh. Now, it wasn't one of those setup things where you get like a year and a half. I mean, our, guys, our, <laughs> people that instructed us were rough. There was a guy named Ace. I think he came in every Monday with a new scar on his face because he loved to fight. He just loved it. And so we'd have to, we'd be stretching, and then he would sit down. If my legs are open like this, he'd put one leg on one, one leg on the other, pull my belt toward him. I'm like, <gasps> He loved it. He absolutely loved it. But year after year after year, I kept going, kept going, and actually I started to love it. And I remember my instructor said, it's time for you to, it's time for you to test for your black belt. It was about six years later. It's a two-day test, three hours each day. I'm a 15-year-old kid. At the time, about six foot, I don't know, 70 pounds. <laughs> Maybe a little more than that. I just was a little guy. But there was no one my age. So it was time to fight. I remember he picks like this 28-year-old this dude was jacked. I mean, I don't, think he had, I don't think he came ever with a neck. It was just shoulder up to his ears. <laughs> like just absolutely, just abs. I didn't have any muscle at all. He's like, go at it. Have fun. Get him. And I'm like, oh, so I remember, I remember fighting, doing all, all the things I was supposed to do. And I felt like I did okay, but I just got the tar beat out of me. And then it was time to finish. This, and this was the tradition. So there's about five or six black belts that came in for our testing. At the end, three of us that were testing for our black belts, you have to get into a squat stance and stand there. Each instructor then comes up to you, tells you to inhale, tighten up, and then they punch you as hard as they can in the stomach. And you can't block it. You just stand there. The first one, I was like, I got it. We went in. Next guy, this guy's like 68, 69, probably 70 years old. He comes up, takes his fist about this far from my stomach, and he just goes, you ready? And goes, wham! I have never been hit so hard in my life. I felt like I, just, I was going to throw up on his feet. It was horrible. Then this pregnant woman, she's like eight months pregnant. I still remember this. Eight-month pregnant black belt woman comes walk, and her husband's next, and he's huge. She looks at me, <laughs> no joke. She takes her belt, moves it to the side, steps back, and just goes, wham! <laughs> Boom! I'm off the ground. I'm on my back. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying not to die. My parents are just watching. Mom's like, they're hurting my baby. They're hurting my baby. I get up. They finish it. Guys, that's, I guess that's how they celebrate. That means they suck at it. It hurt. It was just like, get beat down, get beat down, get up. Get beat down, get up. And I wonder how many of you feel like that's what life is. Get beat down, you just get back up. Is there an end to it? Or better yet, is there a purpose behind it? 
If I was to ask, how about I'll do this? Why not? Let's get honest and vulnerable. Um, leaders, youth pastors, counselors, how many of you came to Christ through a crisis, like a, t- a difficult time in your life? Would you mind putting your hand up? Students, could you look around the room? If you could keep your hand up, please. Guys, Jesus will use anything. Even if it's the crisis in your life, he will do whatever's necessary to bring you into it at least facing him and having to come to some decision about who he is and what it is that he offers. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon, and maybe some of you guys have heard this song, verse 1, for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, Turn, turn, turn. A time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. And he keeps going through this list. And here's the thing, friends. Doesn't it just feel like, okay, here's this good thing that happened in my life, and then boom, something comes. And then you're going through that, and then something good comes, and you just, doesn't it feel like you're just kind of in this ping pong match, except you're the ball. Just getting smacked back and forth, back and forth. It's like, okay, this is good. And does anyone have this mentality? Okay, life is so good. You're already starting to think, when's the bad coming? Friends, this is how he's writing. Everything's, everything's vanity. My life is a mist. There's really nothing to it. In other words, there's no certainty in this. But when you see a sovereign God over these circumstances, I can sit there and go, I can't control any of these. I've had a good few days up here, and I love it. I love every time I get to come up here. But I have no clue what I'm going down, down the hill to, or if I even make it home. You said, I go, oh, that's kind of morbid. Friends, God is the one in charge of how many days I get to live. It's up to him. Great things happen. Difficult things happen. I get that. Friends, I still remember when, I, when, when God gave me this youth pastor job years ago that I just adored, and I still remember when I got to it, and within the first year, my wife had to go to a doctor's appointment, and it's there at that doctor's appointment. The doctor didn't tell me to come with her. There she is with our one-month-old and our two-year-old, and he just looks at her and says, oh, you know that lump on your throat that you want us to check or on your neck? Oh, we're going to take that out, right? Good, because that's cancer. Just said it. I've never been more angry in my life. Everything was great. Two little boys, one brand new, one month old. We still didn't know, we we forgot our names because we're so tired because we're sleep deprived. But everything was wonderful and then this comes and I remember when she called me. She called my office line and she says, are you sitting down? And I wasn't, so I sat and she just says, I have cancer and everything changed. I just felt like God walked up and he just slugged me right in the stomach. And some, I know that, and I know for some, he's like, I'm gonna defend God. God didn't do that. Friends, read the Psalms. Read the, read the book of Job. And Job is just honest, going, it just feels like you're afflicting me. A time to celebrate, a time to mourn, a time to rejoice because this is so great, and a time to hurt. This is life. 
And I want to encourage you, though, there's a sovereign God over it all. And God will use every single thing in our lives, first and foremost, to bring himself glory, second, to do the best work that he has in mind for us in us. Friends, you have to trust him in it. For some of you, maybe you've looked at that or something happened in your life, and that's just turned you away from God. And you might even say, Brian, if I sat down with you eye to eye, knee to knee, and I told you what it is that happened in my life, and I prayed, and nothing changed, nothing came about, there's no way that you would just keep saying that God is good, God is great. Are you sure? And what's that caused you to do? It's caused you to run from God. But can I ask you a question? How has that made your life any better? How has it really helped? Because I've watched people go through suffering without Jesus, and then I've watched people go through incredible suffering with Jesus, and the difference is miraculous. There's a sovereign God over it all, and there's a purpose in all of it. God knows what he's doing. There's a lot more to that story, and it's a whole different message, and I don't have time to get into it tonight. I'm thankful that my wife of 25 years is still with me, and I'm thankful that God did a great work in me. But I'll tell you this. I would never want to do it again. I would never want to go through it again, but I would never trade it. I would never want to do it again. Every year she gets her blood work, and it starts freaking me out until I get the news back. So I don't want to do it again, but I wouldn't trade it. Why? Because I never knew a relationship with Jesus could be like this. And God had to break me in order that he could heal me. Think about it. If when my boys were little, we're walking down the street, and say I've got Dylan by the hand, and all of a sudden he breaks free, and he bolts out, in front of the street, or out into the street, and as, as I look, there's this bus coming, and he's going to get hit. But I jump on him, and then I roll him out of the way. But in the process, I break his arm. Would you still consider me, me to be a good dad? Why? Because I saved his life, Right? Even if I hurt him in the process. So why do we blame God for being a good dad? Because doesn't he do that when necessary? When you get to verse, uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. It says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The word business is labor or work or troubles. When you go back to verse 10 again, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, or this toil that they're going through, these troubles that they're facing. Friends, when we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and God had to curse Adam and Eve because of their sin, and he had told them this is what's going to happen before it ever happened. He says, this is it. This is what comes from it. He says, if you do this, you will die. But do you realize that every single thing of evil came into the world because of that? Guys, aren't you tired of some of the stuff that we see going on in the world? Doesn't it just seem like societies are unraveling? Guys, I'm tired of seeing, I'm tired of seeing news clips and hearing reports about school shootings. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of cancer. And when you go to a funeral, 
you've been to a funeral, yeah? When you're sitting there, do you ever have this thought or this feeling that just kind of hits you going, it's, just not, it's, just, it's not supposed to be like this. There's something missing. Because of our sin, there is this business, business or busyness that we have to do. In other words, we have to deal with the outfall, or I'm sorry, the fall, our fall, our, our rebellion against God. We have to deal with that. And that's upon all of us. But he says in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart. You know why when you're at a funeral, you sit and go, it doesn't, it's not supposed to be like this. It's because God has put this idea of eternity in the heart of people. Think about it. Who came up with the concept if it wasn't God who put it into us? Like all of a sudden that means pretend there's no God. We're just, we, somehow we just showed up. Remember nothing creates something. Isn't that amazing? The cosmological argument is this. Time, matter, and space is not eternal. There was a beginning for time, matter, and space. At one moment in time, time was created because time has not always been. So time, matter, and space was created at one moment. So that means before any time, matter, and space was there, there was absolutely nothing. And somehow nothing came about and decided, let's create something. For those of you that hold to that, and yet you put down Christians and say, you can't just be living by faith. How are you any different? Aren't you doing the same thing? It's just, it's a religion, just like anything else. So say there's no God. Where did we come up with the concept of eternity in the first place? Where did it come from? Someone just thought, oh, forever. Where would you come up with the idea of forever? I think God has put that into our hearts. And we show up and go, something's not right. And that word beautiful is all another word for appropriate. But it also means this, beautiful, fair, lovely, handsome, proper, pleasant, well. It made me go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. When God looked at all of his creation and said, yeah, it's very good. It's very good. But when we hear the word good, we think, oh, it's not, as, it's not the best, but it's good because it's, there's this level. Guys, when you look up what that word means in the Hebrew very good means this, good, merry, pleasant, desirable, in order, usable, efficient, friendly, kind, morally good, excellent, happy, and right. That's what that word means. In other words, when God created everything, he looked at it and it's perfect. It's perfect. And then we sinned and rebelled and it broke. He's put eternity in man's heart, Augustine, an old school preacher, I think from the 300 said this, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they, until they can find their rest in you. Let me say it again. You made us for yourself, he's speaking to God, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have this idea of eternity in our hearts because God's put it there, but I got to be honest, I don't understand all of God's ways. I don't get what he's doing. Friends, there's no way that you can know every single thing that God is doing in this moment. Here's an example. Are you telling yourself to inhale and exhale right now? You're sitting there going, I do. That's my existence. That would suck. Like, your sleep would suck. Can you imagine, like, the only way you got to have your AirPods in and you're listening, inhale, exhale. And you're sleeping, ah, oh, I feel it. What if you run out of batteries? Oh, and you start freaking out. But do you tell your heart to beat? Do you have to tell your body to move? Now, for others, I know that there's some physical things you have to deal with, but 
Like I'm not telling myself to, I'm not telling my brain waves to work. I'm not telling myself to breathe. It just kind of happens. I don't go inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, heartbeat, inhale, exhale, heartbeat, heartbeat, inhale, exhale, take a bite, chew, inhale, exhale, digestion. Oh, 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 that's not it. I'm not going any further. Uh, inhale, exhale. It's like I don't live like that. And so think about it. The only reason that you and I are alive right now, taking a breath, is because God provides it. Because God holds all things together. Friends, we don't even acknowledge every single, there's no way we could. And our coming to know Jesus, friends, it was not something that all of a sudden we just came to our senses. It's not like I just know there's something, so I'm going to go on this search and I'm going to find God. No, no, no. The book of Ephesians, in the first chapter, I think it's verse 4, says this. That those of you who know him, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That means before you could say, let there, before God said, let there be light, he said, let them be mine. He picked you. He chose you. And you're not the leftover. Guys, I don't know if I don't know if you grew up. Did you guys play like kickball or something at recess? Did you do that? I mean, there's before apps, and so like real like really pick a team. Did you do it this way though? You always had the same two people want to be captains. It's like pick teams. I'm captain, and you know why they did? It's like right because they're gonna get picked. I'm just joking. I'm not gonna do that. But it's like now I'm captain, captain, and then they start to pick, and I was like a second rounder, second third rounder. But you ever have that? And maybe for some, I'm gonna I'm gonna open some wounds right now. I'm so sorry. But it comes down to like the last two, and you're on that team, and you're sitting there going, I'm so glad I'm not them. Be honest, that's what you're thinking, huh? And then maybe some of you guys are super athletic, and maybe you had a little pride in you going, man, don't pick that one. Don't pick him. Man, they don't, they don't know how to kick. It's like it's all about winning rather than compassion, because that's how we kids are. Friends, you're not the leftover to God. He picked you. Before time began, he picked you. Before you could do good or bad, his favor was already on you. He chose you. In other words, he wants you. This God put eternity into our hearts. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Why would he do it? I want you to turn if you want to. Some of you said, I already know this verse. If I say John 3, what's the verse? Yeah, there it is, right? If I was to ask you, can you recite it? You're like, yeah, what language? I got it, I got it nailed down in like 22 languages. I can go frontwards, backwards. I'll do it while I'm drinking water. Like, what do you want? Has it become boring to you, though? Do you understand it? Does it get you? I mean, th think about all that we've talked about so far. This is our third chapel together. But if I sit there and go, for God. There it is. And then it turns into this, for God so loved the world that he began perish and eternal life. For God, the one who measures the universe with the span of his hand, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who said, let there be, and creation began, the one who came up with every concept of enjoyment that we could think of. Friends, God is the one who created music. Who are the musicians in the room? Do you realize that you were created with that desire in you and that ability in you? Why? Because God is the most creative creator ever. Friends, music didn't just come because we thought of something. Guys, music and worship has been happening to Jesus, to God. The angelic beings have been worshiping their creator ever since he created them. 
Friends, he created it. Who loved the arts? Who's artistic? You like to draw or you sculpt? Who's that? Guys, you're knit together by the creator, the most creative one. And he's sitting there going, I want you to use the gifts that I've given you to bring me glory. That God who measures the universe with the span of his hand, that God who keeps us moving at 1,000 miles an hour, going around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour, going around the nucleus of the Milky Way galaxy at 540,000 miles an hour, that God who put 30 trillion cells in our body, that every three seconds, 50,000 of those cells die out and are replaced by 50,000 new ones, and we don't even know it, and God is just doing that, and their DNA strand is being reproduced every three seconds and 50,000 new cells, that God... For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Friends, when you say I love you to someone and you're not giving, you're not serving them, but all you're wanting to do is receive from them or take from them, that is not love. Love is always sacrificial. It's generous. Friends, if you're not doing that in your friendships, But you're using the word, you need to come back to actually looking at the definition of the word. Read 1 Corinthians 13 and see whether or not you're truly loving. For God so loved the what? The world. Us. That he what? He gave. Gave what? His only son. That whoever believes in him, that word belief is to place your whole trust in Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What's eternal life, though? A lot of times we just think eternal life is just length of time. Guys, that's not what eternal life. Jesus actually defines it in John chapter 17. He says, and this is eternal life, that they might know you. He's speaking to God. He's speaking to the Father. And that they might know your son. Eternal life, yes, we get to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. But that relationship with God does not start when I die. It starts when I, what? Surrender my life to Christ. And eternal life is a quality of life that I get to enjoy the Father. I get to enjoy the Son. I get to be indwelt by and enjoy the Holy Spirit. Like I get to enjoy Him because that God who so loved the world, that Jesus who came for us, that Jesus has come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And ultimately, bless you, all the, and ultimately, what that means is what? Ultimately, come into relationship with him to be forgiven. But it calls us to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from this life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever is to believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Didn't come to condemn, came to call. Jesus showed up on a rescue mission. He crossed enemy lines and came for us because he loves us. But friends, are we used to it? It's like, well, of course he loved me. And I, you know, he, I know he died for me on the cross. I know he came back from the dead. I know that, but what else? And friends, when that is what our heart is like, it has become callous to the beauty of what it is that Jesus has done. We're not humbled by it anymore. We're used to it. What did Jesus endure? Friends, if you've read the scriptures, you see that Jesus went into a garden to pray. 
disciples were with, were with him, and he took three further along with him, and he looks and said, I need you to pray. The Bible says he goes about a stone's throw away and collapses to the ground, and he begins to call out to God. He calls out to the Father, and he says something like this, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. What's he saying? The cup in the Old Testament is a representation of the wrath of God, and so what he's saying is, take your wrath from me. It's almost like Jesus is saying, Father, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But not my will, your will be done. I thought he loved me. Oh, friends, he does. Oh, he does. He told his disciples to pray. The same disciples who said, we would die with you not too long before that. He comes back, and what are they doing? Do you remember? They're sleeping. The same guys that said, we, we would die with you. They can't even stay awake with them. I used to judge them until I realized that I fall asleep during prayer too. So he wakes him up. He says, guys, I know the body is weak. I know the spirit's willing. You got to pray. The Bible says he goes away again and prays. But friends, he didn't just pray that one thing only. In John 17, it's around verse 23, 24. This is when Jesus calls out to the Father and says, Father, this is what I want. Guys, I can't find another place in the gospel accounts where Jesus tells his Father, this is what I want. It's always this. I only do the things that I see the Father doing, and I only say the things that I hear him saying. It's always submission to the will of the Father. But here he says, this is what I want. I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see me in all my glory. I want them. You realize that at no place in the gospel accounts of Jesus in the garden does the Father ever respond, and his silence was deafening. Why? Because the answer was clear. If you want them, then it goes through the cross. Comes back, the disciples are what? Sleeping. Goes back again, prays. What did Jesus endure in the garden, though? Guys, Luke is the only one who writes it down. He's a doctor. He's a physician as well as an incredible historian, he said this, that Jesus began to sweat drops of blood. And some may thought it's just poetic license in describing how much agony he had. Do you realize that there's actually a physical condition that when you're under so much stress, you're terrified of something? It's called hematidrosis. The capillaries in your forehead will burst and you'll begin to sweat drops of blood. Jesus was terrified of what's coming. Then this group of, group of uh, temple guards show up to arrest him. And as they chain him up, and just like he told his disciples, all of them bolt. And then this fake trial, and they're trying to accuse him. They get these fake witnesses. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? You have a Jesus who understands. He gets it. Guys, he was completely innocent. How innocent? He had never sinned. And yet they accused him why they couldn't stand him. Isn't it weird the religious leaders whose one job was to recognize God in Abad when he showed up failed at it miserably. They couldn't stand when God showed up. Because Jesus, who is God, went up against everything that they had created for themselves because they weren't about God anymore. Fake trial goes on. They pretty much just say this, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, it's as you say, and from this moment, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He quotes from the book of Daniel, and he says, Son of Man, that's a divine title. So he's saying, this is it, this is me. So much so the high priest tears his robe, we don't, have any, we don't need other witnesses. What should we do with them? And they say, he needs to die. They take it before Pilate, fast forward, to Pilate. Pilate's like, it's not my deal. Go, send him to Herod. Herod's kind of like a little fake king. Go to Herod. Herod's like, hey, tell me some stuff. Do some tricks. 
Jesus pretty much stays silent. He's like, I don't want to deal with it. Go back to Pilate. Goes back to Pilate. Jesus is being accused. Religious leaders are trying to convince Pilate, you need to crucify him. And they're using these weird things. It has nothing to do with their own Jewish law. It has everything to do with, hey, he's saying he's a king, which is opposition to Caesar. There's, there's this crowd, and Pilate's having this conversation with Jesus, at least trying to, and Jesus isn't saying anything. And all of a sudden, Pilate says something like, do you not understand that I have the authority to release you? And then Jesus speaks, and this is my own paraphrase, but I think it's like something that Jesus said, something like this. Oh, Pilate, you're JV. Welcome to varsity. Oh, this has been put in place before time began. You got no play here, dude. You're a pawn. This is supposed to happen. Why? Because I prayed. And in the garden I said, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see me in all my glory. And this goes back to the first garden where something innocent had to be slaughtered because of the sins of other people in order that they could be covered this all happened in gardens that you have nothing to do with. Do you realize that the Bible says that Pilate tried to get him released from that moment on? He's like, oh, he hasn't done anything worthy of death. I'll just have him flogged. Friends, this was flogging. They would take Jesus and completely strip him naked. There'd be a vertical beam. They would tie leather strips around his wrists and tie, tie them to the top of the beam so his back is completely exposed and stretched out. And then they would take two Roman guards, one on each side, each of them having what's called the cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails, picture, picture a stick about 18 inches, and then there's leather strips tied at the end of that. At the end of those leather strips is what? Glass, razor, rock, bone. Becomes a claw. 39 times from his neck to his calves, a Roman guard would take it and slam it as hard as he could and then change the angle and rip it open as, as, as far as he could. 39 times. Why 39? Because too many people died at 40. So they brought it back one to show mercy. And still, I don't think this is why he sweat drops of blood. I think it'd be part of it. Can you imagine after 39 times, Jesus, who had already been beaten up all night, mocked, spit upon, by religious leaders, now has gone through this. He collapses to the ground. Then Roman guards come and get him. They put this purple robe on him. Then they find these thorns and they make this crown. They put it on his head. The Bible says that they actually took a rod and they smashed it into his skull to make sure that they'd stay put. And then a cohort of Roman guards, five to 600 of them, they're looking at Jesus who's all swollen up and beaten. Guys, they would blindfold Jesus, take a rod and hit him in the head and say, oh, prophesy, who hit you? And all of a sudden, as Jesus is standing there, can you imagine one eye swollen, the, almost, the other one almost swollen, he's just standing there not saying a word, bleeding profusely, five or 600 grown men, all hail, king of the Jews, in mockery. Can you imagine what heaven looked like? Can you imagine Michael the archangel just saying to the Father, send me, send, I'll destroy them all. And God stayed silent. Why? For God so loved the world. They bring him back before Jesus, or they bring Jesus back before Pilate. And he has this plan, I'm going to get him released. So it's, hey, during this time, I always release one prisoner. You can have Jesus or Barabbas, Jesus or the murderer. Guys, this is a church softball pitch. This is obvious of what they're going to say until the religious leaders got the crowd, the mob, to start shouting Barabbas. He says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And then it starts, 
crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus stayed silent. Pilate signs the edict, washes his hands in front of like imagery. This is, his blood is now on your hands. It's not my thing, it's yours. They would take the robe off of him, put his own clothes back on. They would take the crossbeam of the cross that weighs any, anywhere between 70 to 120 pounds and they would walk him about 600 yards. As he's walking, guys, imagine you've gone through all this. You're, ble- you're bleeding profusely. As they're walking, Roman guards surround him. Why? Because people are jumping through the Roman guards to pull parts of his beard out, to smack him, to spit upon him. And Jesus just kept walking. Why? Why would he keep going toward his death? Why would he keep going for those who are beating him and screaming at him? Why would he keep going? Because in a garden, he prayed this, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see me my glory. Can you see each step just going, I want them. I want him to be with me. I want him to be with me. Why would he do it? For God so loved the world. And they would get to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they would strip him completely naked. They would take the cross beam and connect it to the vertical beam. They would lay him across the cross beam. They would take one arm, stretch it out as far as they can, and drive a railroad spike between the two bones that are in his wrist. And they would take the other arm and do the same thing with that. They would take both feet, put one over the other, bend up his knees, and drive a spike through both. And while that was happening, the Bible says that this is what Jesus said out loud, not just once, because well, he only says it once because it says one time. The way that it's worded in the original language means that Jesus actually said this over and over. What did he say? Father, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. He's calling out for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him in the moment. Why? For God so loved the world. And then they would raise that cross, and at some point, gravity would become too strong for the one who created it, and pull his body down. And because of the angle in which he was attached to the cross, and as the weight of his body became too heavy, his elbows would dislocate, his shoulders would dislocate. Why would he do it? For God so loved the world. Friends, you didn't die from crucifixion by bleeding to death. You died because you couldn't breathe. See, as he hung there, he could inhale, but in order to exhale or to speak anything, he'd have to push up on the spike in his feet and pull up on the ones in his wrist in order just to breathe. And it wouldn't be these long breaths. It'd be something like... (laughs) Why would he do it? For God so loved the world. And still I don't think that's why he sweat drops of blood. About noon, the sky went dark like midnight according to the scriptures. And from the cross, Jesus was able to get these words out. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, it's the only time in the scriptures when I see Jesus pray that he doesn't call God Father. It's my conviction that at that moment, Jesus became what's called the propitiation. The propitiation means this. Jesus became the new target of the full and complete wrath of God because of the sin of the world. Any person who was born before this was happening, anyone who's alive in that moment, and all of us to follow, the sin of the world placed upon Jesus, and the Father poured out his wrath. Jesus took our sin for God so loved the world. 
I think that's why he sweat drops of blood. Can you imagine the break in intimacy between the father and the son when he calls him, my God, my God, as he took on the sin of the world and became the target of the wrath of God, something that God had never experienced. For God so loved the world. Friends, he was attached to a cross at 9, and about 3 p.m., his heart's just pumping, trying to find any ounce of blood left in it. And he knows he's about ready to die. And he says this. He says, it is finished. Friends, I don't think he whispered it. I think he screamed it. Friends, this is why he came. It's over after this. It is finished, but friends, when you look at what that literally means, what Jesus literally said from the cross was not it is finished. What he literally said was this, paid in full. It's a banker's term. From the cross, he says paid in full. What's that mean? All the Old Testament sacrifices that were prescribed in order for us to be right with God, all the blood that had been shed for us to be right with God, Jesus is saying all those things pointing to me that Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice There'd be no sacrifice necessary after him. There's no payment you can pay to make yourself right with God. And so Jesus, from the cross, as he's getting ready to die, he says, paid in full. And then then he prays this last thing, and he says, Father. Isn't it weird that he goes from my God, my God, to now back to intimacy with the Father? Why? Because he's done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last, and he died. Why? I'm sure you can get it, right? For God so loved the world. When Jesus died, the scene shifted from the cross to the temple. There was this massive earthquake that happened. In the temple, there's this most holy place. The high priest went into the most holy place one time a year. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. One time a year, the high priest went in. Nobody else could It was thought that if anybody went in there in a manner unworthy of God, that that person would die in the very presence of God. That curtain that separated the most holy place, some scholars say it was 18 inches thick. When Jesus says, it is finished or paid in full, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, God shook the earth, and then that curtain was torn from top to bottom as if the Father took his finger, sliced that sucker open, opening up to the very presence of where God is. He's like he's saying, you now have access to me because it's been paid in full. For I so loved you that I gave. Friends, for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, and maybe you get a little irritated when someone who does love Jesus comes up and tries to tell you about Jesus, can you at least now see why? Before jumping and saying, I just get annoyed. We all get annoyed by something, but all they're trying to do, hopefully, and followers of Jesus, hopefully we're doing this grace and truth together. Having the truth doesn't mean that we can be jerks. Grace and truth together, hopefully when you share it. But for those of you that don't know Jesus, can you at least maybe pull back, objectively look at it and go, at least they're just trying to help. Because they really believe that I need to know Jesus. Friends, on that Friday, Jesus died, placed in a tomb. You ever think about what Saturday felt like? For the disciples, they thought this was him. You ever stop and go, what was Saturday like? Wouldn't that be the hopeless day? It's over. What do we do? He's done. Friends, I used to just preach that message 
And I would stop at Jesus' death, and I'd get kids to make decisions, and I'd make them walk forward, and I was like standing there like I'm the second Messiah. Like, I'm it. Come, come to me. Come to me. But I'd, I'd, keep, I'd keep throwing the guilt on. He died for you. He died. He died for you. I remember there was one camp, and a kid that I'd prayed for the whole week, he came forward to surrender to Jesus. The next day, he comes up. He goes, Brian, you see what happened? I said, I did. He said, can I ask you a question? He said, absolutely. And he said, what happened next? I'm like, you know, Brad, how can you not hear that? How did you not? <gasps> I never told him. Why? Because as a pastor, it's so much easier to guilt people toward a fake decision rather than to tell them the whole story and let the Holy Spirit do the work of saving them. Oh, I've been convicted ever since then. Friends, let me tell you the best part. Jesus on a Friday died, and on Sunday he kicked death in the face and came back from the dead. Just like he said he would, and why is that the greatest moment, the greatest event in all of human history? Why? Because in that moment, if Jesus didn't beat down death, then neither can we. If death beat him, it will beat us. But because he beat death, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. There was no way death was going to win. That's why he could declare from the cross, it is finished, before he even dies, because he knew he was coming back from the dead. There was no question about it. And for some of you sitting there and go, that's why I can't believe you. I don't believe that part of the story. You're telling me you came back from it. I am. But for those who have a hard time believing that part, can I just remind you, if you have a hard time believing that Jesus could actually come back from the dead, you're in great company. You know why? Because none of his disciples actually believed it would happen either. I'll prove it. None of them were there waiting with signs and balloons. They were in front of the tomb going, it's time. Today's the day. Welcome back. They're like, oh, countdown, 10, 9, this is it. None of them, they're all hiding. The stone was rolled away. Jesus was already gone. And the first people to show up were some women because the guys were hiding. You ever wonder why the stone had to be moved? Was it like Jesus is sitting there going, hello, I'm back from the dead, but I can't move the rock. Do you think it's so that Jesus could get out or so that his disciples could go in? So that they could see that he was alive. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn it but to save it. Friends, that was his first coming, but his second coming, he will punish sin. And this is the part that maybe said to go, I don't like this part of it. I told you from the beginning, I told you, I think it was yesterday. I will love you enough to tell you the truth of what the scriptures teach, and I am not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. According to the book of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I will never, ever again apologize for my God as if I'm apologizing for some weird uncle in my family. Jesus is always right. God is righteous and just and perfect. He is never at a loss of what should happen. He is never having to apologize for anything. His judgments are pure and true. His motivations are always correct. He is gracious and loving. He is merciful. He is perfect. He has wrath. He's just. He's holy. 
and he's worthy. And the invitation that he gives this, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word confess means to this. It doesn't mean I've said the words and I'm good. It's not repeat after me these words and they're magical and I feel, I feel saved. The word confess there in the original language means this. To confess means to say something in such a way that you will see that declaration by how they live. You are not saved by what you do, but how I live will prove that I've been saved. Does that make sense? You cannot do enough good things to make yourself right with God. For those that say, oh, but Brian, I'm a pretty good person. No, no, we're not. Compared to God who's perfect, we're nothing. We're sinners. We deserve his wrath, but Jesus took it for us. Why? For God so loved the world. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the word Lord means master. In other words, I submit to you. You're in charge. I give up my rights. I give up my life that I think I have. It's all yours. And Jesus imputes to us righteousness. What's that mean? So picture, we've all been wearing all these massive coats. Well, some of you. I saw some of you guys walking around in shorts. How freaky are you? I don't understand that. I'm freezing. Here's what imputed righteousness looks like. So imagine I have a coat of sin and, you have a, and, and Jesus has this coat of righteousness. I have a coat of sin. Jesus has a coat of righteousness. Imputed righteousness means this. He walks up to me, takes off my coat of sin, takes it upon himself, and gives me his coat of righteousness. I didn't earn it. It's been imputed to me. It's his gift. So now I stand in this righteousness that Christ has imputed or given to me. I can stand before the, I can stand before the Father, and the Father, God, sees me as righteous as Jesus is because it's been imputed to me. We're saved by grace through faith. And this faith, not of ourselves, that faith is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, for those, and I say this as lovingly as I can, for those that just say, all religions are the same, it doesn't matter. How is it you can have one religion saying, Jesus is God, and this one saying, no, he's not, it's all good, as if God wouldn't be offended by one of these. Jesus says, he didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I am a truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Say, what if I don't want him? You can decide not to. But you will stand before God one day, not covered or not having righteousness that's been imputed to you, and you will stand before God in your sin, and he will punish. And you'll be separated from him. Guys, hell's a real thing. And you sit and go, how could a loving God, think about it, how much more could God prove to you that he loves you than to endure everything he did so he could have you back? For God so loved the world that he gave. So here's how we're going to do this. I want to make sure you understand this. You are not saved by anything that you do, so you do not have to stand up. You don't have to. I used to never say that. just wanted him to stand up. To, my, ego's all, my, my ego was all stroked. You're not saved by any works. Why? So you can't boast about it. So standing up doesn't save you. So why do it? Because you'll get to remember that on, what's the date? February 3rd. 
2024, I was in Pondy Chapel, and that's when I stood up to tell people that I was surrendering to Christ. I was surrendering my life. I was surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. I was confessing that he's Lord of my life, and I received forgiveness and salvation from him. What if you already did it, though? Like, what if you did it while you're here? You want to stand up and let us know? Wonderful. But if you don't, it's okay. But please understand this. There is nothing embarrassing about this. All of heaven has a flippin' party. Heaven goes nuts. And if you're surrounded by true followers of Jesus, so will we. So don't feel embarrassed. Even if you say, well, Brian, I've kind of been faking it. Like, people have thought I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, and let them know that you really are. But again, you don't have to. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, those of you who never surrendered to Jesus, to stand. Not so you can be saved because you're saying, I'm sur- I've surrendered. And so we can celebrate with you. Those of us that are here, we're going to keep our heads up and our eyes open. We're all going to watch. Why? Because there's nothing more powerful of a miracle than watching a person who was dead come back to life. To see a person come to Christ, that is the most powerful miracle in all, in all of creation is that. As the worship team comes back up, we're going to go back into a worship song, but I want to ask you to do a couple things. For those of you who have never surrendered your life to Jesus, you never surrendered, and you say, I want to follow him, to declare his lordship, to ask for his forgiveness, to repent from sin. You don't accept Jesus' gift and then just keep living in your sin and say, it's not worth it. I repent from and I go with Jesus. You're saying, I want to follow Jesus the rest of my life. And when you say that, he says, great, the first thing I want to give you is salvation. That's the gift. And then discipleship costs us everything forever. But he's worth it. Oh, he's worth it. Friends, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you want to enter into a relationship with God, you want to confess that he's Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead with every head up and every eye open, would you stand up so we can celebrate with you? Awesome. For those of you standing, just stay for just a second. Let me ask you a couple questions. Just one word responses. By standing up, are you saying that Jesus is now Lord of your life? By standing, are you saying that you believe that he died on a cross, came back from the dead? Are you saying that you want to follow him the rest of your life? Then welcome to the family. You can have a seat. Last thing I'm going to do, for those of you that say, I've done that before, but maybe you need to repent. You need to come back. You wandered off. Some of you say this, Brian, I'm a Christian. I'm just not practicing right now. That's like me saying I'm married. I'm just not practicing right now. (laughs) What does that mean? I'm a Christian. I'm just not doing it. It's not working out for me. Friends, Jesus isn't something that works out for you. You surrender to his lordship, you follow him, and if you've wandered off, I want to lovingly and honestly invite you back into intimacy with him. 
come back into fellowship with your creator. Then you need to repent from sin and come back to Christ. But maybe there's another group of you that's like, you're broken. Like whatever it is that you've been burdened by that we've been talking about so far, it is so heavy on you and you're just sitting there going, God, I'm broken. And you're saying, God, would you meet me? I want to confess I'm broken. Would you do a work in my life tonight? If you're in either of those two camps, whether you're a student or a counselor or a human like staff, whoever you are, if you're saying, I got to come back or God, I'm just broken, would you stand up? For those of you that stood up and you're coming back, before you go to sleep tonight, I want you to, I want you to read the second half of, half of Luke 15 before you go to sleep. And watch the response of the Father in that parable. It's amazing. For those of you that needed to come back, I just want to tell you, welcome back. And for those of you that are broken, I promise you this. There is a reason that God is the great healer. And that the Holy Spirit who is given to you when you surrender to Jesus, he's the great helper. Even if he doesn't change the circumstances, he will change you. And then he'll take care of the circumstances, but he will introduce joy in the midst of it no matter what comes. But what if tonight's the night he says, that's it, it's all done. We're going to trust him with that part of it, okay? Can I pray for us? Could we all stand in honor of Jesus? Father, thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your son. Jesus, we thank you that you so loved us that you gave up yourself. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you so love us, those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, that you are now in us to lead, to guide, to counsel, to convict, to encourage, and to help. And we give you thanks, God. We thank you for your invitation, God. Jesus, we thank you that you told us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God, thank you for what you've done for us. And thank you that you wanted us that you wanted us this much. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a great work. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees said, Amen. Love you more than you know.